We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Hello, everyone. Hi. Um, this is, a, 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 we would call it a pop-up webinar. Um, so I am here with my friend, uh, Dr. Brenda Boyer. Um, hello, everyone. I hope you are all well. Um, so please join the online community for this webinar. Uh, you'll, get you'll get to view and share the recording. Uh, you'll get a CE quiz. And you can download the slides in the chat log and you can join the discussions and you can get invitations for upcoming webinars. And there is the link to join the online community. And so I am Michelle Ludela. And uh, I do these in this in the emerging tech community on a monthly basis, more or less. Um, so I'm the library department chair at New Canaan High School, which is about 50 miles outside of New York City. Um, I also teach at Southern Connecticut State University in the library science program. And um, I do webinars at edweb.net. And a couple of years ago, I wrote a book co-wrote it with my friend Jackie Whiting. I don't have a copy here, but it's called News Literacy, The Keys to Combating Fake News. And it's a book of lesson plans to teach kids to think critically about the media they consume. And I'm going to let Brenda tell you about her, but there's a reason she's here with us today. So <laughs> tell us about yourself, Brenda. All right. All right. Thanks, Michelle. So I'm Dr. Brenda Boyer, and I am the department chair for library um, services at the Kutztown School District in Pennsylvania, and I'm a part-time lecturer in the Rutgers uh, Library Information Science Program um, as well. So Michelle and I, uh, our paths have crossed in various ways in the library and technology world, <laughs> and um, we, we have, have discovered we have so many things in common, and one of them is our love of um, design models, apparently, <laughs> and design thinking models, which uh, Michelle has spent a lot of time on and I have studied as well. So um, when she asked me to talk about instructional design today, um, we've kind of left it open as a, a sort of loose conversation, and we're hoping to touch on a couple important things, but very, very practical things about instructional design. And so we don't intend to bore you with lots of theory. We're hoping to keep it practical. Yes, agreed. So um, this is us, and I think we'll probably go to big, big. Just uh, we're going to close that that set of screen, that the set of slides. Um, so there we are. Hi. Um, couple of weeks ago, probably two weeks ago, AJ Giuliani, who's the author of uh, Oh my gosh, what's his book? Um, I have it right here. Uh, it's launch, a really great book. Launch, yeah, launch. Power. Thank you. Um, speaking of design thinking, wrote, um, wrote a blog post and it starts with, um, I messed up for the first weeks of our current situation. I've been referring to what teachers, schools and families and kids are going through as online learning or distance learning or virtual learning. While we're all doing some of that online distance virtual learning right now, it is not what this should be called. This should be called emergency remote learning. It was not planned for. And I'll stop there because, Brenda, you, you did your, your doctorate on, on instructional design. Is that correct? 
That's correct. Okay, so tell me about the bridge between what you've done and what he's talking about. So in instructional design, frontline learning, we're always looking at what are the possible recipes um, that we could put together to make learners successful, help them be successful. And there's countless learning theories out there, theories from brain science and so on, um, lots of great thinkers out there about how this comes together. Um, and so we, we can work on these recipes and, and test them all out. And most of the design models, um, as you know, Michelle, are all um, cyclical in nature. The purpose is to get us from, you know, um, the objective to the learner and so on. Um, but in thinking of it in terms of emergency learning, um, it definitely does make a difference. And so you have to think about what is most essential in your instructional designs. Um, so when we talk about, as, and the, uh, please jump in anytime you want, Michelle. Yeah. But when we talk about um, that cyclical nature of all design models, um, whether we are designing um, cars, products, um, or instruction, we have to have an iterative And so when we think about instructional design, um, many times people are very tempted to start with content. What is the content that I have to get across? But really the most critical step is who is my target learner? What do my students um, that are in front of me or especially now, not in front of me, what is it that they need most? So what are their needs in relation to that content? So we always start with our target learners first, making sure that we've, we understand what it is they need. Then from there, we're really ready to talk about the goals and objectives of what we're doing. Um, and then the next step from that will be what would be an appropriate assessment to prove we've met that instructional goal okay and so then wait, wait, wait. And I want to talk about the target learner for just a minute absolutely sure. so most of the design models I think about are, are basically empathy they is it is this is the core starting point we have to kind of wrap absolutely. our head around who's going to be your client or your user or your student in our case right so right. I'm finding this, okay, let's get like the practical element of this. I'll just sort of fill you guys in on where, where we are in our school system. Maybe you want to do the same too. Um, and I'd love to hear from you guys. But March 11 was our last day in the building. March 12, we took as a snow day. Online learning or emergency remote learning, we'll call it, if we take AJ Liliani's verbiage of this, um, right. started on March 13th, Friday, March 13th. Um, so since then on that day, we sent out an email to the faculty and to all students and said, the virtual library is open all, all, every period of the day, every day of the week. And we follow a schedule. And so we're now, we've, we've gone to block schedule, which is our first time in block schedule because the first week we met every period of the day, every day of the week. And I nearly lost my mind. And then we scaled it way back. We have a B day. So the library is open virtually. We literally keep a Google Meet room all the time. It's the same link that we keep posted on our website so kids can come there all day. And I think about the kids who are coming to the library by choice, right? Mm -hmm. So when we think of our, even if we do it for a teacher evaluation system, right? We think of our high, our middle, our low, right? 
That's what we, that's when we try to, so we try to wrap our heads around, I guess one of the things we should be thinking about is who are those personas? Like even write out, it's almost like a script of what would the high student be? What would the middle student be? What would be the low student be? What would be their needs? In what ways would they use our space, our learning space? And how can we empower them to be successful in that space? So what I'm finding with an option to visit the library, you get the high, you might get a medium to pop in because they really wanted you well. Who we're missing completely are the lows. So how do you make this learning environment effective and meet the needs of the kids who need it the most? So within five days, we were starting to set up conferences with kids because that was the only way to scoop those kids who would not choose to come and who yet who needed to come the most, right? Absolutely. So I think that's a really important point that you're talking about with, with like figuring out who is your target learner. Like you've got to wrap your head around that. And I do... I, and I learned this in when I was taught at Rutgers, because um, Brenda and I taught there for a short time together. I taught there for two two semesters. Um, we we developed some assignments where developing personas was part of the work we did with with educators and training. And I can't tell you how many educators came back to me and said, "I don't get this persona thing," right? Um, and, and that can be a really hard thing to do, but if we can't actually get our head into the user's experience, then I think we've got that we've, we've got to challenge ourselves to really get there and do that and think about what the user experience is. All right. Sorry. I needed to really spend a little bit of time with that. No, and that's, that's so important. That's really that empathy piece that is, as you said, always the first part. Um, you know, we talk about that as, as designers when we're thinking about instruction, you know, what are, who are target learners, what do they really need? And, you know, at this point, we're, you know, in our district, we've talked a lot about what is the most essential thing that we need them to have. Um, and we talk about, um, you know, what percentage of your material can you think about? And so, you know, we're looking roughly at 40 to 60% of what we would have done in our face-to-face -face experience is probably what we could translate at this point um, into that online world. Um, and then, you know, when you're moving into that and you're thinking about what are your objectives, you know, that you need to help these, these kids attain, then how are you going to measure it? Because it depends on the level of technology that you've had in your school. You may be measuring things in a very similar way, or it may be completely new depending upon your circumstance. Right, right. So Nairi just posted, I should just follow up on this, that she says that Rutgers, Joyce and Jennifer Lagarde, are, are Joyce Valenza and Jennifer Lagarde are pushing that persona idea. I just want to clarify that it is from Joyce that I got that idea while I was teaching the course that Jennifer is now teaching. Um, so. Absolutely. And we do talk about that in each of our, you know, LIS courses where we, we really want, you know, our future librarians to be focused on on the learner, on the students in front of us, or whether they're public library patrons, doesn't make a difference. You need to focus on what their needs, where they're coming from, walk in their shoes a little bit. 
So thank you for elaborating on that piece. <laughs> yeah. So um, I wanted to take a look at, so when we talk about, once we, once we figure out who our end user and what, what are some, what are some easy to use de design models that like we could sort of engage in? Somebody says that I should move, but I can't tell which way I should move. So is this better? Just say yes. <laughs> Cause in my yeah. screen, I'm there. I'm right there. Oops. So um, probably the simplest model that most people are familiar with is basically UBD, Understanding by Design, um, because that starts with looking at, you know, your, your target learners, what their needs are, what their goals and objectives are um, for learning. And then um, you can go into what, how would you assess that? How would you measure it? And then you can more carefully um, come up with you know, what the, what's the content, what resources do those um, students need to get there? And so um, I'm, hoping I'm making sense, Michelle. You had a funny look on yep. your face. You no, know, I got myself locked out of my own screen. Um, okay, sorry. I, I didn't know what you were <laughs> didn't saying. Didn't have time to keep me going. Yep. Um, but basically that's it. So, and I'm thinking about um, people who are, you know, posting materials online. Keep it very simple. That has to be your rule of thumb, is keeping things simple. So if you are posting units of, of information or study for kids, you need to make sure that you're starting out with that goal, that objective, but that you're doing something engaging, something inspiring to pull them in because motivation is our biggest um, you know, problem right now that we right. need to help keep our kids motivated, help feel, make them feel um, connected and so on. And so, so can uh, you give us some examples of that? Because you've done a lot of this work over the years. So tell us some sure. fun things I mean, that you've done. Your, your motivation piece at the beginning, let's say I'm doing a, a unit, um, it, I could talk about what our goals are. So for my students right now, I have ninth graders in research and design. We simply, um, I have what, what your goals are for this week, what you need to get done, because the kids want to know what is it I have to do and achieve. And then your inspiration could be as simple as a short video that's humorous. It could be a meme. It could be um, a really intriguing kickoff question. Um, it could be any kind of, you know, it could be a challenge of some kind that is integrated with the, the content that you're teaching or, or trying to get across um, at that moment. And so ways to really pull the kids into the assignment um, and make them feel like it's relevant to them personally, um, because we don't want kids to feel like this is relevant because it's going to be on a test somewhere right. someday. It's relevant because it's going to help me right now, and it's interesting to me right now. So um, I'm seeing a lot of conversations about Zoom, and and maybe you you may perhaps you want to weigh in on this. How important is face to face, screen to screen, I should say, interaction with the students on a daily on a daily schedule on a fairly tight routine? Yeah, I think it, it, this is the big question everybody's looking at, and I really, there will be lots of research that comes out <laughs> of this uh, circumstance right now, but I think it's really, really important that we try to touch base with our, 
our students and see them face to face. Um, I'm hoping at least once a week that I will get to see um, my students just to reinforce that connection. Um, just to let them know that someone is there, someone is looking at their online work when they're posting it in my class. Um, they are not just cut loose and, and on their own. And so I really believe it is important to have that face-to-face -face time. Um, in our school district, we are also using Zoom and or Google Meet. Um, and so far, so good. It seems to um, be working out really well. Um, but I think it's really important for our kids that that they see us. And I'm so, again, that can depend on the age group of the kids and so on. Go ahead. Yeah, Karen, you raise a really good point. This is the equity piece. Um, Brenda teaches in a district that's been one-to-one one, one -one for what? How many years? I don't know, 10? Oh, uh, we've been one-to-one -one 15 years. Yeah, now. so a very long time, um, right up there with Maine. Um, and, uh, and I teach in a district that's been one-to-one -one since for two years now. Uh, so that really does make a huge difference. Um, we don't necessarily need to see the kids' faces as much as we do find that it's very helpful for our students to connect with us. Um, most of the kids who visit, who visit, who I work with when I conference with them, um, have their camera turned off. Um, that's really common. It seems to become a growing, it, it became a growing practice the weekend all of the Zoom bomb press came out. Uh, uh, so I don't, I don't know if you guys know about the Zoom bomb business, but the, apparently <laughs> um, people have set up Zooms without turning on all the privacy settings and apparently they've been crashed with um, people who are showing or displaying pornography on their screens. Um, so, and that is why, and I saw this come up in the chat already, that New York City, um, the school district this day said, Zoom is out, we're not doing Zoom anymore. It was a big story in the New York Times, it's been passed around, parents in our community, which is just next door to New York City, are very concerned. So we're still using Zoom for interactions, uh, for, for professional development, but not so much with the kids. Um, so I do find that since that story came out, maybe parents are just saying, turn off your camera which is fine. I, I do find that when the cameras are on, it gives us an opportunity to have that, like we wanna make those personal connections with the teachers. And so, you know, yesterday I had a kid on and she had a bunch of ribbons behind her and I said, what's your, what's your event that you get all, that you earned all those ribbons for? And uh, she said swimming, and I said, "Well, that must be weird. You probably haven't been in a pool in over a month." And then when was the last time that happened? She said, "I can't even remember." So that those mm -hmm. are those are interesting. Those are the interactions that keep them coming back for more. So it's not just being motivated about the work; it's also being motivated about feeling connected to other people. Um, people are going way out of their way to make connections. What were you talking about? They're charging event. They're charging money for 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 nightclub events. Oh yeah, <laughs> I think there was a piece in the New York Sunday New York Times about um, people are running private nightclubs via Zoom. <laughs> you have to pay to get into <laughs> and get an invitation. So all these, as we were saying earlier, all these businesses are cropping cropping up. Um, one thing I did want to say um, about that though is. And, and one thing I'm really sensitive about, and this is going back again to that empathy piece, is um, even though in our school district, of course, all of our students have, have equipment provided by the school district, 
we have to remember that their privacy is so, so important. And we may have kids who aren't comfortable with us seeing, um, you know, the background behind them in their house or what else may be going on in their homes. And so, you know, we have to be incredibly sensitive and gentle about any kind of those requirements. So for us, you know, we are providing that synchronous face-to-face time for feedback, um, you know, questions, of course, research help, all of that type of thing. Um, but we, we do need to be careful how much of it is, you know, demanded that they come for a synchronous lesson. So what we are doing is if teachers are doing synchronous live lessons, they are recording their lesson part so that, it, of course, it's available to all of our students. So we're trying to keep that equity piece foremost in our minds um, as well. Um, it's Zoom is offering, uh, no, I think it's Zoom is offering a new feature. They're doing something in beta where they are letting students post. It's very much like Flipgrid. Only the other kids don't see it. So they're posting their, their, their assignments to you. So that would be great for world languages. So if students do have cameras and most kids, students do have phones. I mean, that, that, and they can, if they can use the phone with the technology, then they can use a camera on their phone. Right. And I would say too, remember that if you do use a tool like Flipgrid, um, just set it to moderate and then you as the person who is in charge of the grid, you would see all of the of the videos, of course, mm -hmm. and you give kids the option to say keep mine private or post it. As well. Right, right, that's an option too. Um, I'm sorry, we're we're obviously spending a lot of time on on FaceTime versus not FaceTime and cameras and live and synchronous and asynchronous. Um, what? I, um, what are some rules of thumb about synchronous? And you kind of covered it a little bit. You said you have to be somewhat flexible. We were talking about, well, and just some, some rules of thumb um, about any, any of these things that we're doing is, is watch how much time we're spending because um, it can be really long for kids to attend in this format, of course. Um, but any, any rules of thumb for anything you're designing as far as online instruction, and especially right now, is that idea of keeping it simple. Mm -hmm. Make sure um, that what you're presenting, whether it's in writing or in speech, is clear, it's easy to follow. Make sure if I'm posting things into our learning management system or um, on the library website and it's something you know that involves a skill they are learning. Make sure the progression is logical. Um, you know, I work with lots of people on designing their online learning management system spaces, their units, and so on. You know, take advantage of white space. Think about the reader. Think about where they're coming from as they're looking at that screen. Um, sometimes we get carried away, and we want to make sure everything that we would have covered um, in school, we want to have every possible thing, every resource there. We're, that's very tempting for us as librarians because we want to give them every possible great resource. But um, right now, especially, if we're helping kids or putting things together for a research project, if it's something that is somewhat extraneous, don't include it. If you're setting right. up a page, 
of information. Um, don't get carried away with extraneous clip art and things like that. Um, simple rules of thumb. When it comes to instructional videos, because I mean, and Michelle is the master of creating wonderful tutorials for her students. Um, but one thing that I see people sometimes doing when they create instructional videos, and again, um, we talk about this with our Rutgers students, is you have to keep it short and to the point. Um, I think there's some research out there that said um, seven minutes is ideal. Personally, I think four minutes is the sweet spot. When I create an instructional video, I really don't want it to go beyond the four-minute mark because that's too long um, for people to watch. Um, short, simple, clear. Um, if you're creating a, an instructional video, again, I would, I would urge people to avoid background music. Some of the tools out there have fantastic little soundtracks that you can add to your instructional videos. Um, you know, I would urge people to avoid that or be able to duck down the audio um, if it's extraneous because you want to remember that uh, learners, you want to engage their most important modalities. And, you know, they're, they're viewing and they're listening at the same time, so you don't want to have too much extraneous stuff in there. Um, when you are narrating your videos, be as clear as possible and, you know, try to clear up the uhs, the ums, you know, those good speech practices that we have. Mine is so. I always say so you can see them in the audio. You can see them in the audio line because they're really loud. I say it so much louder than everything else. And I know how to pluck them out, but yep, we've, we've all got them. I never knew I did that. <laughs> I did that too. I interviewed a former student and then, um, um, there it is. Uh, he was, he was in, in Denmark and I was interviewing him because he got a job for Lego and it was awesome. And I wanted to, I'm sharing it with my kids. And then when I looked at it later, I was, I was just so relaxed and having fun with him. And then I realized I said, um, in every third sentence. And I was just mortified <laughs> to share it. And I couldn't ask him to do it again. So it does happen. But um, I don't know, Michelle, do you want to weigh in on my point yeah. about the shortness of a video? I right. I, I kind of do. I think I, it's important to chunk stuff down for kids, especially for our learners or kids. So I have different tiers of video production expectations for myself. Um, so first of all, I want to, there are a couple things that are going on in the chat that I wanted to talk about. First of all, you talked about a learning management system. And um, I think that you talk about issues that have really complicated this transition for many, many, many schools is if there wasn't a universal learning management system before you left the building. And I got to tell you, we were guilty of that for years. We had, we had um, uh, Kia and Moodle and some people are using Schoology and other people are using Google Classroom and, and oh gosh, so, and did, did, did education, we had all, like kids were spending their whole day in and out of different learning management systems. And we were really proud of that for a very long time, about 10 years ago, we thought, well, we're teaching them versatility and we're teaching them how to adapt and they, they have to be resourceful. But for the kids with executive functioning skill problems, that is really, really tough. Um, uh, we are last year we piloted uh, an experience with Schoology that happened to be the one that we went with. Um, I, I, I have loved Moodle for years, loved it. I, I, oh, it's the open source thing. Loved, loved, loved it. But 
it's labor intensive for faculty and it's a steep learning curve for a lot of people and you can do amazing stuff in Moodle, but it's hard yeah, to do it. You can it. make your class really pretty. Yeah, it's very you've got amazing, if, if you want to die, take a deep dive and Brenda spent a lot of time in Moodle before she was in Canvas where you, where you are now, right? Um, right. And, and I, I think that that has really been a huge sticking point that hasn't gotten to a lot, talked about a whole lot. Um, that, you know, if your school had a school or a district had a, you know, basically a sort of a universal learning management system, it's much smoother to move to emergency remote, I won't say distance learning, emergency remote learning, because the kids all have the same landing place where they can go, and the faculty can work within that. Unfortunately, that is not the case in a lot of places, and that's been a huge problem. So when we talk about people going home with packets, paper packets, for two or three weeks of snow days or whatever kind of emergency days that they had stored up, they used those, and then they went to online learning, that's part of that transition has really been very difficult. So I did want to address that. Storm Snaith, hi, how are you? She's local, um, very local, just probably two miles down the road from me. Um, I mentioned, finally clarified, thank you. I, my head is bumbling with new technologies. Um, every day we are so bombarded in offers for free stuff from vendors everywhere. I can't even process. I wonder if they understand what it feels like to watch all these opportunities sort of slip through our hands because we don't have time to process, start, sign right. up, register, take advantage. Um, I'll just share a quick experience that I had. Um, we subscribed to JSTOR. Great product, amazing, fabulous. And JSTOR just said, opened it up. They just said, okay, you can have access to 100 articles for free every month. Uh, just register. Well, that's great, except that we had a whole mechanism to sign into JSTOR that was pretty sophisticated, I'll say. I was pretty proud of it, worked really hard on it. But when they opened that plug, that they opened the paywall, it broke our system. Our kids couldn't get any articles from JSTOR mm -hmm. unless they set up a separate account, which was different from ours and like basically used the free account. So we fixed that today, but that's the kind of stuff that I'm not sure vendors are seeing how hard it is for us to manage all of this. Now, it is really important that that equity piece be out there and it is really important that they get there. But I think it's hard to pick and choose what's going to work best. So it all comes back to that same thing that we said way back. Who is our learner? which of these products are best going to serve our learner needs. Like literally get little index cards and let's make some profiles of who we think our learner is and try to align our email inbox with those learners and start picking and choosing from them. Right, um, and, and don't forget for librarians, our, our colleagues are our learners too. Right. And so, so many of the things I look at, I'm trying to evaluate it from their point of view of you know how difficult is the learning curve for them to have to learn one more tool to deal with um, because everybody's pretty maxed out right now as far as that i can't believe how many people are here <laughs> like how many floods <laughs> to come to webinars do you get like are you flooded with those two yeah. um i did want to get back to storms storm you clarified screencastify submit is not has nothing to do with zoom um, that is the tool that I was reading about that is very much like Flipgrid, but it's actually a way for students to use screen Screencastify to submit assignments. Uh, thank you for clarifying that. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I I know Sharon. It's like it's it's just sort of a, an abundance of riches in this bizarre time to have all this free stuff thrown at us, and how 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 we're having a hard time negotiating that, plus the invitations to webinars. Um, there was a whole other direction I was going to go in just a minute ago, but I can't remember what it is. So, do we have any other? We rules were talking about we were talking about creating tutorials because a lot ah, of us right. Are Thank you. Making sure our kids can continue research. And I was kind of giving my own experience philosophy of, you know, four minutes is, feels like a sweet spot to me. And um, even for myself, maybe my attention span is dropping as I get older. Um, <laughs> because if I have to watch something that's longer, it has to be super, super engaging. Um, but, you know, I want to say to that, it's really important to think about the amount of content we give kids and maybe you need to chunk it down a little bit because, you know, while we may be expert researchers or users of whatever the tool or databases we're sharing, you know, we have to always come from that novice standpoint, make sure our kids get to just what they need if they're brand new learners or for our more advanced or our older senior research kids. Um, you know, what is the shortest shortcut that I can give them? You know, what, what are the best features of whatever the tool is that's going to get the job done for them? Because that's all they want to know in those videos. So it's interesting. The video thing is really, I mean, I've, I've been doing videos for a really long time. So I have, I, know, I think I'm close to 400 in my YouTube channel. It's a lot. Um, but now I'm finding that I'm revisiting topics that I visited before. So I'm using the fresh one as a ref but I but now I offer a supplement so if you want to learn more you can go back and watch the old <laughs> yeah. one so that's been really helpful in terms of time limits I have a wide range of time limits so if it's something that I'm just like want to get to this one piece of learning two minutes is my max um, it's really hard to do two minutes it requires a lot of editing um, I do find four minutes is a sweet spot for something mm -hmm. substantive but I try to keep it at three or less. Um, mm -hmm. Then there are the full lessons. Like if I was to go into the class and I can't do that for some reason, or I have too many classes scheduled, nine is my limit. And nine is crazy expectations. So what I've learned with really long lessons, like I'm working on this thing called anatomy, uh, or evolution of a search. And it's really taking students step-by-step -step through the search process. So what I'll do is chapters on that and turn it into a playlist. So I have two to three minute videos with an assessment built in at the end. And I administer Perfect. that through the learning management system and that assessment piece, but we've used the learning management system to do the assessment. We've used Mo Moodle, we use, now use Schoology. And um, we've also used Nearpod, which was really effective for that. Mm -hmm. But I, I have a hard time sending kids off to do some Nearpod stuff on their own. I just, I, right. I mean, it's really hard to manage the back end of it. So I tend to want to do that live. We haven't used it in this space. And I think it's actually probably right. an interesting environment in which to try to do Nearpod. I'm, I'm curious to see if anybody has done that. Edpuzzle is really good too. Yeah, I'm seeing Edpuzzle and Nearpod and they are great. Um, and we use those types of tools regularly in my school. Um, but one of the things I really thought about um, as I was putting together stuff specifically for ninth grade was I also don't want my kids to have to go to a lot of different spaces digitally. And so things that I may have sent them 
out for, I'm kind of bringing it back into just in the canvas atmosphere. Again, just thinking about some of, uh, some of our kiddos who might get lost along the way on the path. So keeping it simple in this emergency kind of setting is really important. But tools like Edpuzzle and Nearpod are fantastic to get that formative assessment to know, do the kids have it? Are they getting, you know, what the, the point of this tutorial was as well? Um, Bernadette, you bring up ELL kids, and I, I, I have to say that's one of the places where conferences have been really, really helpful. Um, if you have the capacity to conference with those students and really walk them through some steps. I'm finding that the quality of my one-on-one -on -one time with kids in this environment, when I can get them, is really strong. I, I like that I can... You know, it's different to have them watching me do a search so I can model it and then turn over the screen sharing function to a student and have them walk me through. I find mm -hmm. that I'm suddenly feeling like a yoga teacher. No, put your cursor to the left over here. Okay. And now, yep, right <laughs> on that accent, like really walking them through how to make corrections on their own is really instructive. And that's not something we get to do when we're standing over their shoulder. Um, right. So there's a quality to this um, that I hadn't anticipated. And yes, it does require both people to have, you know, the capacity to A, see one another or at least screen share. And but it's been very, very helpful to be able to do that. Um, I was talking to someone very randomly, like, uh, I, I don't know how I was talking to them. Uh, he was telling me that Upon leaving the building, their children were issued Chromebooks for the first time ever. And wow. that I, I think a lot, I think that's happening in a lot of districts where they were able to pull together emergency Chromebooks and then send the kids home with those for the first time. But without the technical support, I don't know how that's rolling out. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? You guys are just, you're having such a conversation over there. It's really yeah, amazing. I can't wait to awesome. see the transcript. I, I, there's awesome. such great, great conversation happening. This is the thing I love about having a lot of people in the room is you guys are amazing. Um, so, so back to my, back to the video thing um, and, and, and doing the content. I was meeting with a teacher the other day with a class. We, we met with the class. We tend to start our classes with try to do a 10 minute virtual experience, just sort of give them the instructions for the day. And then we schedule conferences for the rest of the kid, for the kids who need it the most throughout that period. Our periods are 60 minutes long, but obviously we don't do uh, video for um, 60 minutes. That would just be awful. <laughs> I could get to a, what are they, um, an hour long lecture in, on video. Like that would be a brutal experience for any adolescent. Um, but, but, he went through the paper packet. You know, you know how teachers like introduce a, a project and they go over the assignment with the kids. I mean, I don't know. I've been a teacher forever and I used to do that and I don't do it quite the same now. I do it a little bit differently, but it works in a face-to-face -face situation in a lot of cases because the kids do have questions and it does sort of sort through a lot of those questions. But in this environment, it's really tough. So we decided we were going to chunk it into little mini videos to introduce it. And so as we move through the process, we're really rolling it out little by little. So we're finding that that's super helpful, that instead of going over the whole packet in one day and try like, okay, go. 
um, that we're really chunking it. So the scaffolding is really an important part of, Absolutely. of you say, you know, don't overwhelm them. Another thing that had to happen was we had to slow way down. Like it was yeah. crazy. <laughs> we, you know, I had, before we left school, we set up timetables for the research process and it was a three week process. And we said, okay, you're going to do two days on this. And we're going to do two days on this. And then we're going to have a check-in over here. And then we're going to give them feedback. And then we're going to turn it back to them there. And here's how we're going to go do that. Right. That's what that was the plan. And then we literally stood, spent a whole day sitting at our screens for three days and said, wait, 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 this is so not going to work because the truth is it's really hard to grade during the school day. I don't know if that's true for right. everyone. That's definitely true for me. So that whole feedback thing, we need to build that into our schedule because the last thing we are capable of doing when school ends at the end of the day is sitting at a screen for longer. Like you have to get exactly. up and walk away at some point. I've started building a luncheon and I, I get outside and walk brisk, briskly for 20 minutes just to get out and like stretch my neck and do stuff like that. It's very different day. And we have to build in a mechanism that's like sustainable. So the slowing Absolutely. down thing was really critical. And literally one weekend, we got notification, amazing, amazing, from our administrators who said, all right, we're doing great. You guys are rocking it. Now slow down. <laughs> Take a breath. We right. cut the schedule exactly. in half. And we literally, what was a three-week assignment turned into a six or a seven-week assignment. We really changed it because the kids... Yeah can't go they and just like us they can't do homework at night on top of spending their whole day in this environment so we kind of we eliminated homework we said that's it like right. if you can't do it during class time so we made the periods longer so the homework is built into the period so there's some independent work time but you're still accessible so the t kids can come and ask for help if they need it but it's that's really right. been a very effective system Yep, and that goes back to our, our main rule of thumb is what is most essential. And so when you keep asking yourself that question, I know when I was putting together things on Canvas for ninth grade, I went through four iterations of it and kept boiling it down and boiling it down and chunking it down and thinking about what was really the most important thing I wanted them to do. And I've noticed in the um, the chat, there's been a lot of great suggestions for the amount of time, which is exactly what Michelle was just talking about, like keeping it to a very small amount of time. Like for my ninth graders, I have it down to literally for a half credit course, they will have less than two hours a week of work time to do. So really, if they put one solid hour into their research and design course, they will hit the goals um, before June. And so that's, that's kind of my target there. So thank you to everyone who's giving the suggestions and what their, their schools are doing as far as time. Um, Michelle, one of the other things I noticed in the chat was people were talking about how to really, because we talked about videos quite a bit, but how to really leverage discussions. Um, and if you have okay. a learning management system, that's terrific. And because I know we wanted to talk about some engagement. And one of the things or four things to keep in mind is that you want to make sure um, we're engaging kids with interaction, practice, um, how they share their work, how they get feedback. And I think the fifth one and critical one is reflection. 
um, mm. give kids space and time to reflect on the learning because that metacognitive piece is really important, and especially because we are not standing in front of them reminding them about why this was important and what they learned. Um, we need to give them a little bit of space and time. And so when we're talking about engagement for interaction, practice, feedback, and all, discussions can be absolutely vital in the online world um, as far as um, kids sharing out their projects, their work, getting feedback from us, getting feedback from one another. Um, I just think that's really important. So I wanted to thank the folks who were talking about the discussions and um, ways that those can be leveraged. Then that's well. like a social piece too. I mean, the kids are feeling really disconnected from one another. So you really can tap into that need, that missing vacuum in their lives and really get them to start connecting together. Um, right. You know, I, I had this crazy idea yesterday that I haven't even pitched to my administration, so I should be careful if I roll it out because I honestly have no idea if this is going to go anywhere, but I did want to share it here. Um, you know, we have uh, many schools who have high schools. Many high schools have senior internship programs. I know you do, right? Do your kids go off on mm -hmm. internship? So, you know, now sudden that's canceled and we may or may not have them back in the building or we may, I don't know what's going to happen. Who knows what's going to happen after May 20th in Connecticut. Um, but, you know, what, 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 as you said, you know, our learners include our faculty. How can we, how can we facilitate that? If we're librarians, we certainly have an opportunity there to try to tap into that, those kids, that need, and really be, assert ourselves as somebody who can really facilitate sort of a trans, a transitional experience or some kind of other experience that's not quite what they're doing now, but, but that may help them in the long run. So, so, so my crazy idea was, um, what if we, what, what if we had kids working collaboratively in groups to explore the, sorry, my dog was whining the whole time. <laughs> so, I've been texting. I'm saying, come get him. He's whining at the door. <laughs> um, so that what if we had the kids collaborate to investigate how this crisis is impacting the industry that they were going to go into? We had 180 kids who were going to go off into internships. What are we doing? Like that would be, that would be really, um, an interesting exploration and using these tools to do the kind of discussion and collaborative engagement, like there are a lot of opportunities. I still keep thinking about that question about the EL learners because, you know, when you say, go to Nearpod, go to Flipgrid, go to this, go right. to that, we're going to do this, we're going to do a discussion, right. like all of the anxieties that come up around that because it's got to feel all so uncomfortable. And when your whole school day is sitting at a screen outside of your comfort zone and you have nobody to turn to and say, help. I don't know. I don't know how that works. I don't, you know, right. I think about other haves and have nots, the faculties, my faculty, I mean, and I know we're all experiencing this. There is a have and have not within the faculty the kid, the teachers who are home with school aged children are having a very yeah. different experience than I am. You know, my kid's grown. She's yeah. 28. She's working from home in Boston. That's a whole different scenario. And we talked about kids who are taking care of siblings while they're at home. So that's an issue. The other issue is teachers who are taking care of their school-aged children who are struggling because this is hard for everybody. It's hard for the parents. It's hard for the kids. I listen to podcasts almost obsessively, obsessively. And it's really interesting. Like I listened to this one from The Economist and, you know, all these highbrow British 
accented folks come on and they're say, and they're literally telling you how they're just like shoving their kids in front of musicals. But the upside is they're using the couch as a trampoline because so now they're jumping off the, 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 the couch to musicals. And it's really, it's really like, it's hysterical. Uh, my battery's low. That's no good. There we go. Um, That's fantastic. And yeah, I, I love that idea, you know, that collaborative research piece that you were talking about with your internship kids just doing, you know, that's live action research right there. That's fantastic. Um, and I, I noticed a couple people were talking in the um, chat also about collaboration. Um, if your school is a, a Google um, tool school, that it's already built in. That's so hopefully a lot of folks have it, have that. So your students can continue to collaborate um, if you have those Google, the Google tools as well, um, which is just like a lifesaver for everything <laughs> these days. Yeah. Um, so a couple other things, Michelle, that we, we kind of batted around when we were talking about this was when we were talking about engagement, um, and even though developing this, this stuff is a lot of work, one thing to think about is if we can, in some ways, um, you know, keep that element of fun uh, try to gamify if you can. And talking about Google tools made me think of this. Um, you know, you can use Google Forms or and Google Quizzes mm. to create very simple or very complex uh, digital breakout boxes or digital escape rooms. And that's a really fun way. Um, it's really not too difficult to do. But that's Wait, a fun way more. to keep kids engaged. Sure. Like you can... Um, you can use Google Forms and and or Google Quizzes in Forms. You can turn your form into a quiz um, by simply setting up little scenarios that could be used to uh, review content, uh, whatever it is that you want your students to do. And um, you give them a question. They make a choice from a multiple choice um, list. And depending upon the choice they make, if they're correct, it would advance them to a new section of the quiz, right. which would be another part of the room, right? If they're incorrect, they get an incorrect message, and it would bounce them right back to that question again. So you can, uh, yes, branching forms. You can definitely do that. Thank you, Denise. I just saw that. Um, you can easily do that. Um, and make them as simple or as complex as you want to. I've done them everything from simple breakout boxes that were, you know, kids searching for things in certain databases till they got used to using the databases to, um, you know, more complicated escape room type things. Um, so I just wanted to mention that as well. They're, they're interesting um, to set up, but they're lots of fun for our students as well. And so if we can gamify in any way, um, that's a great way to go. And of course, there's a whole slew of, of tools out there from quizzes and cahoots and things like that. Um, but if you have Google Apps at your school, you can simply um, create digital breakouts that way. I'm, I'm hoping I'm doing your name right. Federica, Federicia? Um, that's a part of the Google suite. So it's one of the Google docs options is to do yeah, Google yeah, forms, yep. but you can just create branches within your forms. It's a really great function. It's not something I use enough to really think about it. Right. Um, yeah. but it really, it's, it's quiz. Mm -hmm. you can set up the sections and, and then just set it up for, um, conditions. So it's basically like setting up a little logic puzzle, um, and then just add 
images or videos, anything else you wanted in there um, can really help our kids just to have a little bit of fun with content. Um, well, uh, there was a big post, but I can't read the whole thing. It was really big. They're disappearing. <laughs> that looks like a blog post. <laughs> um, so, so we only have five minutes left. So we want to make sure that we have a chance to answer some questions. And we've been answering some along the way. Um, what questions do you have of us? Professional development providers in terms of design. Right. So this is up your alley, Brenda. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, I'd have to look around a little bit to see uh, what's out there. Um, I'm aware of a, um, a group here in Pennsylvania, um, but I, I want to look around a little bit before I could recommend any any group uh, offhand. Um, and then, then we there's definitely more coming in instructional design for online learning um, because that's another thing that this situation has proven the need for is more PD for um, for our teachers and everything from you know expanding digital literacies and and also to how to really develop a good online um, class or an online you know set of learning tools. Yeah, I. I we're, we're, we have, we've built professional development into our schedule. So teachers have 45 minutes at the end of the day to either work one-on-one -on -one with kids or we offer on Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, we have 40 minutes of professional development time, which is That's the great. gift I've always dreamt of, right? Um, and it's optional. So there are times that they are meeting with their kids anyway, or doing grading or doing that kind of stuff. So that's really been very, very valuable. It's a beautiful piece of the schedule. Um, somebody asked about assistive technology for disabled learners. Um, and I don't have an off the top of my head question for you, but I will do a little homework on that. And we will post it to the community where this ed web is hosted. So we'll, we'll put up a little follow up. Um, that's where the tra transcript will also be available. I know that somebody asked about that. Um, you know, I, as we wind down in our last two minutes, I just want to say thank you all for your amazing ideas. We're all learning this together, which is so very much why I wanted to just have a slide-free conversation, share our experiences, share our ideas, um, pose questions to you. Um, you know, I, I think the more conversations we can have, um, the more important, the more, the better off we'll all be. My hope, my glimmer of hope out of all of this is that we will have all made discoveries about our own capacity for new learning that we didn't really know before. And um, this is tough. This is really tough. I, I, you know, I think of, I think of, you know, there are regions, families, cities, communities in crisis everywhere. And, um, and this is only a very small part of that. Uh, and it certainly opened up the, the it's it's made some things that we've always known were there really really crystal clear and perhaps there's an opportunity to address some of these as we all come out of this um that's my hope of the day it's not particularly insightful Absolutely. or well articulated but it's my hope for the day is that we right. will find some 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 opportunities for growth and repair as we move forward from here Absolutely. Um,
Brenda, I want to thank you so much for doing this conversation with me. I always love talking to you. Um, always love talking to you. Um, for those of you who, um, uh, who, who, who want to, I will be doing a webinar on Wednesday, the 22nd, I believe, on how to incorporate audio content into students' research. And I have a couple interviews coming up with interesting people who have their foot in the field. And I think it'll be a really fun conversation and um, to gush about this podcast if nothing else. Um, so uh, I, I, I thank you so much for coming. It was a pleasure to chat with all of you. Um, I can't wait to go back through the chat, script, chat transcripts and perhaps we'll, we'll collaborate on maybe putting together a little digest when we're done. Um, thank you, Brenda. Thank you, Ed Webb so much for giving us this platform to have this conversation all of us together be safe be well wash your hands and stay stay safe all right goodbye all we hope you enjoyed this edweb podcast if you would like to receive a ce certificate you must watch the video recording recordings and quizzes can be found in the edwebinar archives please visit home edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.